Today, on this first Sunday of the Epiphany season, I will be preaching on our gospel lesson. The beginning of the Epiphany season starts with a remembrance of the Magi who traveled from the east to Bethlehem to worship Jesus, and it's a celebration of the fact that God revealed his word, made flesh, to the Gentiles. In the coming weeks, we will be reflecting on several gospel lessons where Jesus will continually manifest himself as the Son of God, culminating in the Transfiguration, at which point we will begin the season of Lent, where we will reflect on Christ's temptation in the wilderness, as well as his suffering and his death on the cross. This week, however, we'll be considering anew the story of the Magi. I admit that this was my, the, the, my favorite part of the Christmas story as a kid. Um, it has action, political intrigue, violence, good guys and bad guys. As I grow older, though, I am continually astounded at how dark and yet how profound this story really is. We see pure evil in this story. It should unsettle us as we read this story for its truly unsettling material. It's a reminder that when the Son of God was incarnated, he truly entered into the human story with all of its messiness. The Christmas story is presented in Scripture not in an idealized or sentimental way, It doesn't sit apart from the historical scene in which it takes place. It isn't an idyllic scene from a Thomas Kincaid painting that represents an escape from the real world. On the contrary, when the king of the Jews is born, powerful men get up and travel to give homage to the king. Assassination attempts occur. All the typical behavior surrounding a plan of succession are there as you would expect them to be seen as you would expect them to be when the Christ comes there are reactions people are displaced people are killed and this is not a sentimental feel-good story to provide personal inspiration or hope on the contrary it produces several different responses There are three different responses to the message of the arrival of the King of the Jews that I want to consider this morning. We will look at Herod's hatred, the scribes' apathy, and the Magi's obeisance to the King. First, let's consider Herod. In order to understand Herod's response to the news that the King of the Jews had been born in Judea, we should probably know something about who this man is. Herod was the Roman-backed king of Israel between 37 B.C. and about 4 A.D. He was the first in his dynasty, and he came to power by overthrowing the Hasmonean dynasty which preceded him. The Hasmonean dynasty had been uh, rulers in Israel for over a century, and had enjoyed a considerable degree of independence from a foreign overlord, from a foreign power. 
for most of their existence. The Seleucid Empire, which was uh, Seleucids came from Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great conquered uh, the Middle East and went all the way into India, he shortly died after that at a very young age in his early 30s and then divided his empire among his four generals. One of them uh, what became the Seleucid Empire. So it's a Greek-backed uh, empire, a Macedonian empire that was ruling in Israel for several centuries. But by the time the Hasmoneans come along, the Seleucids are in decline. So there's very little external power being exercised there until the Romans come along in 63 BC uh, under Julius Caesar and take control and establish power in the Middle East again, and in Palestine in particular. The last of these Hasmonean kings, Antigonus, was not favorable to the Romans. He was more partial to the Parthians in the east. So Herod comes along. Herod's father was a guy by the name of Antipater, who was an advisor and a powerful uh, um, leader in the Hasmonean Empire. And Herod takes these, this opportunity to wrest power away from the Hasmoneans and establish a dynasty for himself. In 40 BC, 40 years before Christ, Herod was declared king of the Jews by an act of the Roman Senate. With the backing of Rome and the support of Mark Antony, Herod moved against the Hasmoneans in Palestine and took control. Herod's installation as king uh, brought Judea completely within control of the Romans. But for that reason, he sat on a rather uneasy throne. As king, he had to walk a tightrope between appeasing Rome, the basis of his power, and gaining the support of the people over whom he ruled. He was in charge of, collect of collecting Rome's taxes, which the people resented. However, he was also known for his great building projects in Jerusalem, especially the temple. He restored that second temple that had been built after the exile and even extended it out. So it was a magnificent temple, and this would have been to appease the Jews. Herod faced several challenges to his claim to the throne, each of which he put down in a brutal manner. He sent away his first wife, Doris, and their child, and took a second wife named Mariamne, or just Mariam in the Hebrew, because she was from the Hasmonean line that he had just replaced. He thought this would provide him with more legitimacy among the, the uh, people of Israel. Eight years after this second marriage, he had this second wife executed along with her family due to the fear that they were plotting with Cleopatra, as in Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Cleopatra to have him replaced. A few years uh, later, um, Mark Antony and Octavian, the future Caesar Augustus, were in a, a major war, the War of Actium, and because Mark Antony had backed Herod's claim to the throne, he took Mark Antony's side in that war. 
If you know anything about uh, ancient Roman history, Antony is defeated, and Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus, one of the most powerful uh, men to ever rule Rome. Herod, though, had bet on the wrong horse, backing Mark Antony. So, in order to keep his throne, he had to go out of his way to pledge his allegiance to Octavian and prove himself a loyal ruler to Rome and to this particular uh, Caesar, which involved further kowtowing to Rome. What we see in just this brief biography is a man whose claim to the throne was quite fragile and whose willingness to use any means necessary to hold that throne is very apparent even to the point of killing his own family. Later, Herod would also murder two of his own sons that he deemed a threat. His behavior, as described by the gospel writer, Matthew, in our text, is perfectly consistent with this resume. There are, are a lot of uh, critical historians that say that the account in Matthew 2 probably never happened because it's not recorded in ancient literature. In Josephus, for example. And that it's probably just a story made up based on the fact that Herod was, would go as far as murdering his own son. So, you know, what's to stop him from murdering a couple of uh, children in Bethlehem? To that claim, I would respond that we do have a record of the event. It's here in Matthew. We do have ancient sources testifying to this event. And the fact that this record is perfectly consistent with Herod's behavior throughout his reign, I would argue, speaks to its veracity rather than suggesting it was made up. It's an odd argument to say it probably never happened, but it's consistent with everything that he's ever done. I would say that it's probably likely that it happened, right? So knowing something about Herod, it's worth exploring why Herod was troubled when the Magi came as it says in verse 3 of our text. First, his claim to the throne essentially rested on a decree from the Roman Senate. If the people in Israel preferred another king, as long as the new king would agree to play ball with Rome, pay the taxes, enforce Rome's policies, there was nothing to stop the Senate or the emperor from revoking Herod's title and recognizing another king of the Jews. Second, consider who has come into town asking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. These are astrologers from a foreign empire who are wealthy and powerful and had traveled a long way to recognize the king. Now, Herod was known for having spies throughout his kingdom to monitor criticisms or complaints against him. However, if there was a rumor that a king had been born in Bethlehem and that was being passed around solely by some poor shepherds, it would not likely have received the same attention as these powerful, wealthy foreign visitors, these dignitaries coming and asking to meet with the new king. The king in all of Jerusalem would be troubled by this. There's a lot of attention. Third, the Magi 
claim to have seen a star signifying the birth of the king. This was no mere claim of the Roman Senate. This is a cosmic claim manifested in the heavens that was leading them on this long way to Jerusalem. Fourth, I find this most fascinating, the one about, the whom, about whom the Magi are inquiring is no mere claimant to the throne from a rival family in Israel. So Herod's not dealing with another potential placeholder to do Rome's bidding in the region. This one is the Christ, the Messiah. You notice in the text that Herod does not call in his political advisors or his generals to strategize as to how to handle this potential challenge to his throne. Who does he call in? He calls in the religious leaders. He recognizes this claim. He refers to him as the Christ. He calls the experts of the law in. That's what the, the, the term there, scribe, is referring to. Experts in the law. You know, this would be like the president facing a national security threat and calling in pastors instead of his cabinet or joint chiefs of staff. It signals that this is a completely different kind of threat. And here we see the extent of Herod's defiance. Herod knows this is not just another individual claiming to be king or to speak for the people, but the Messiah that is being attested to by the heavens. A new king is not being proclaimed by an unhappy mob downtown, but by stars in the very heavens. Imagine the hubris and the arrogance in thinking one can defy the heavens, the created order, and the testimonies of God's prophets from ages past. General and special revelation are aligning here. The Magi recognized the truth in the sky, and the priests and the experts in the law recognized the scriptures, and at no point does it dawn on Herod that he is playing a game out of his league. He believes that with a little planning, he can thwart this cosmic conspiracy against his claim to the throne and ensure his dynasty's stability. The message of Christ, the Messiah, still provokes the same reaction today. The message of the gospel presents not only a rival kingdom, but proclaims a cosmic plan of restoration. It does not confront the hearer with an opportunity to change one's political affiliation or to sign up for a particular social cause, but to save their soul. And transform their life. We don't claim Jesus was an inspiring example of self-sacrifice, but the Word made flesh who died in order to atone for your sins, by which you stand guilty before a holy God. We preach that apart from union with Christ, 
God's wrath remains on the sinner. Yet many, despite the guilt and the shame and the empty longing of the human heart, despite the claims of Jesus to provide rest for your soul, many respond like Herod. They hate Christ and they seek to kill him or those who represent him. Everywhere Paul went with the gospel, they sought to kill him. There was a riot. Christians spreading the gospel in North Africa today are routinely slaughtered by Muslims. Christians in China are jailed and persecuted as a threat to the regime. In the West, the claims of Christ are vehemently mocked and rejected. They provoke an, a, a visceral, emotional reaction. The implications of Christ's rule anger people. Why? Perhaps, like Herod, those claims to the throne relied on an act of the Roman Senate in the face of the witness of the stars and the prophets today, the claims of autonomy and the right to determine my own identity rely maybe on nothing more than a Supreme Court decision in the face of the law of nature and the revelation of Scripture. The hatred of Christ in our culture is based on a deep insecurity. It's the snake that feels most threatened that is the most dangerous and the most likely to strike. We live in a secular culture that is lashing out in fear and insecurity, much like Herod, about its claims to be the rightful ruler of the modern age. But how about us? Are there areas of our lives where we hate the fact that Christ must rule? Surely, we are all here in church this morning. We aren't haters of Christ, are we? Maybe it's worth asking ourselves that question. Do we love and delight in God's law? Do we desire that Christ would rule in every aspect of our lives? Or are there areas that we hate that Jesus must have a say? Do we lash out in fear that our autonomy might be threatened by Christ? The second response to the news that the king of the Jews had been born is that of the apathetic priests and scribes. Again, this is just astounding to me. Herod does not just call one corrupt priest who can serve as his advisor in religious matters and be his yes man and tell him what he wants to hear. He calls an assembly, it says, of priests and scribes. They're to counsel together and give him a report as to where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born, based on the law and the prophets. And this is not just a matter of, of trivia that he's trying to gather. It's in, specifically in response to the fact that the Magi from the east are in town and the whole city knows about it and the whole city is troubled. 
So these knowledgeable experts on the law meet together and rightly identify Bethlehem as the place in which the Messiah is to be born, which serves to corroborate the Magi's story. So you, you see this external evidence, Magi are in town, we saw a star rising in the east, and then you go check the prophets, and it's like, it's, it's lining up. Maybe this is worth checking out. And yet, not one of these priests or scribes in this assembly that is called is curious enough to go investigate this further. They answer Herod's question honestly. They are aware of the prophecies. And then they go about their business as if nothing of note has occurred. Imagine this from the perspective of the Magi. They've devoted their life to study. They've made this amazing discovery. They've seen this star rising in the east, leading them on to the king of the Jews. They've traveled for hundreds and hundreds of miles to worship this Christ child, this promised Messiah. They arrive in town. They meet with the king and the clergy and ask where this Christ child may be found. This is certainly big news in your area, right? Where is he? And the clergy come off as if they were merely asking for the nearest rest stop or the, the nearest hotel. Where is the Christ? Oh yeah, you know, go down the street a few miles, you'll hit Bethlehem, he's probably down there. Really? That's it? Nobody cares? It's, it's met with a shrug. What's really the, the, the saddest part of all this is that these people do not suffer from a lack of knowledge any more than Herod suffered from a lack of understanding. Herod knew what the Magi were asking for, and he plotted to defy the stars and the prophecies. The priests and the scribes knew what the Magi were asking for, and they could not care less. There are those in the world today who don't hate the message of the gospel. They don't have a visceral reaction to the claims of Christ. They just simply don't care. To make this more relevant in modern terms, we might say they're not conducting a war on Christmas. They love Christmas. Christmas is a time for Santa and Christmas spirit. It's that most wonderful time of the year. Yes, yes, baby Jesus in a manger, that's fine. If you're into that sort of thing. The church, if you're interested, you can go down that way and you can have your, your little service. And it's all part of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the great Christmas spirit. Take it or leave the Jesus component. Christ's birth has no implications or effect on how they live their lives. They're not against it. They just don't care. What about you? Maybe the claims of Christ do not inspire hatred within you. Maybe they inspire nothing at all. Maybe we have come so familiar with the gospel story that it fails to move us at all.
We don't mind Christianity or church or prayer or Bible reading. But we could take it or leave it. It's just meh. It's just one sector of our busy lives. And by far, and by far the uh, not the most important or pressing one is our faith merely a formality, something we can take or leave. And I'll address this especially to our younger people. Are you here because your parents brought you? Is this something you could take or leave? You're not against Christ. You don't hate Christ. You're not against Christianity. It's fine. It is what it is. Or, perhaps, would you fit into the, our third response, the category of the Magi? This is the obvious one in the text. The Magi come with obeisance, with a heart of worship. When they learn that the king of the Jews had been born, they drop what they're doing and they travel a long way to meet with him. The Greek word for worship here in verse 2, Matthew 2, verse 2, when he says we have come to worship him, the Greek word is proskuneo. When they say worship here in the text and use that word proskuneo, they're not talking about having some feelings of love or adoration for Jesus. They don't say, we can worship Jesus in our hearts at home without going on this long journey. You know, that would have been an appropriate response. You know, why travel all the way to Israel just to spend a few minutes with a, a baby? Proskuneo refers to bending the knee to the point of prostrating, you can hear that in the word, prostrating oneself to the ground. When we come this morning to meet with Jesus and bow before him, even as the Magi did, is it the desire of our hearts to render that kind of worship to the King of Kings? We have the great privilege of joining the cherubim and seraphim, the glorious company of the apostles, the goodly fellowship of the prophets, the noble army of martyrs around the throne, as we sang this morning in the Deum. But not only do the Magi come to bow low before the one who was born King of the Jews, they come to present gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, it's an obvious one, was given in recognition of Christ's royal kingship. Frankincense was given in recognition of Christ's holiness and his fitness to serve as a sacrifice. Frankincense is a, uh, um, a spice, an aroma, a perfume uh, that is used, and, and it's used a lot throughout the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. And then myrrh, the perfume used in burial, points ahead to the cross in the grave where Jesus would serve as our substitute and atone for our sin. 
In the worship of the Magi, we see a foreshadowing of the cross. There's a recognition in the Magi of what it is the king of the Jews that they sought had come to do. Christ demands our worship as king and makes claim to every part of our being because he gave himself completely on the cross. Every part of humanity that Christ took upon himself in the incarnation is redeemed. And therefore, upon every part of us that is redeemed, Christ lays his claim. Does this provoke a feeling of hatred within us as we're reminded of the totality of the claims of Christ? Is it merely an obligation that we have to complete so that we can get on with other activities of the day? Is it no big deal? Or do we come this morning as the Magi did to bow low before God and to offer our gifts of praise to Him? This epiphany season, as we celebrate God's goodness to us in manifesting Himself to the Gentiles, may we be drawn to Him. May we receive Him by faith. May we worship Him in spirit and in truth. For we have seen His star rising, and we have come to worship Him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful once again that your plan from the beginning was not just for one nation or one people, but was always aimed at the restoration of all things and bringing all nations to yourself, that you might be Lord and ruler of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. So we thank you, Lord, for your gift of grace in revealing yourself first to the Magi, as well as to countless others as the gospel would go forth from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we have this gospel that through ages past has come down to us today, Lord, help us to receive it as the Magi did. Help us to recognize even in this season, even in uh, your nativity, even in the epiphany, to recognize the cross, to recognize that to which all of these events point toward. And may we be struck anew. May we be moved in embracing the cross, in embracing you as our only substitute. And recognizing, Lord, that because you have completely saved us and because you are sanctifying us and will ultimately glorify us and resurrect us to new life and that every part of us is included in your salvation, that for that very reason you lay a complete claim to our lives. Lord, drive away from us the areas in which we may be rebelling or apathetic 
to your message, to your gospel. By your grace, do this, Lord. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reflection hymn is number 83.